Mark, thank you. Before you uh, crack open your Bible this morning, I want to make two announcements. One, I want you to notice in your bulletin that next Sunday we'll be having a First Sunday Fellowship for the first time since last April. So it's a big, big deal. Now, I encourage you to block that day off, bring something for yourself and a little something to share. If you're still kind of nervous about stuff, uh, then just bring your own sack lunch and eat it yourself. But other than that, it will be our usual covered dish lunch and following the service. So please join us. And uh, newcomers to New Covenant, you can come without bringing anything. We'll provide your lunch for you. And if you're not sure if you're a newcomer or not, well, then just ask. Also, I have more copies of uh, this uh, little commentary I've been holding up, Let's Study Revelation, by uh, Dr. Derek Thomas, frequent speaker on renewing your mind. If you're uh, struggling with the way we're going through Revelation and how we're interpreting the book, I encourage you to pick up one of those, and I think you'll find it helpful. It's not a technical book, very simple, very easy to read, recommend that you take one of those. All right, our passage today is Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 20. So uh, find your place in your copy of God's Word. Let's read our passage today, and then we'll dive in to this section of the Word of God. Revelation 14, 14 through 20, I'm reading from the ESV. This is the Word of God. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle, and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe." So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This is God's inerrant and holy and authoritative word, may he bless what we've read. Let's ask for his help as we look into these verses this morning. Father, we do pray for a, a fresh filling of your spirit. Lord, quicken us today, uh, quicken our minds and our ears and our attention to hear your word, hear your truth, strengthen me to preach and teach clearly what your word says. Father, may uh, your word penetrate our hearts May it prepare us for the end. Savior, we pray you would do this among us through your mighty spirit. We ask in your name. Amen. One of the uh, most elaborate hoaxes ever, uh, in television history was an April Fool's joke broadcast on a BBC show called Panorama in April 1957. The show's a dignified host, very dignified British voice, Richard Dimbleby, uh, told a story on this three-minute clip about the annual spaghetti harvest filmed in a Swiss-Italian spaghetti orchard. There we go. Uh, the report was complete with footage of local women carefully harvesting the crop from the spaghetti trees, delicately placing the uh, 
harvested crop in their reaping baskets, and finally laying the freshly harvested spaghetti out to dry in the alpine sun. This was followed by a meal celebrating this annual spaghetti harvest, uh, complete with, you guessed it, a spaghetti dinner uh, of homegrown spaghetti. Now, if you're not laughing, you need to turn and ask the person next to you why they are. <laughs> well, nothing more than an elaborate April Fool's joke, of course, but the harvest that we just read about in today's passage, it's no laughing matter. This is no hoax, even though it's been made a hoax by how often people tell us when it's going to happen and give us the specific date. It, Christian community sometimes becomes a laughing stock because of things like that. People announce the date of the return of Christ. And for many, it's nothing less than a, just a big joke. This is no joke. Uh, this morning we come to the final harvest, the return of Jesus Christ at the end of the age. We've been building up to this point over the past few Sundays. The beginning of chapter 12 took us all the way back to the birth of Christ. Uh, we saw the woman giving birth to the, to the male child, Satan, attempting to prevent his birth and attempting to destroy Christ. Christ, we know, conquered, however, triumphing over Satan at the cross. And then chapter 12 reveals that having failed to defeat Christ and destroy him, Satan, the red dragon, the great red dragon, as he's referred to there, turns his attention toward the church and the followers of the Lamb and wages war on them. Uh, this is carried into chapter 13. That describes some of the allies of the, of the dragon, of Satan, in this holy war. Uh, we read about the beasts from the sea, uh, which is nations and governments persecuting Christ's church. We read then about the beast from the earth, which are false religions and false philosophies that lead people to worship the first beast. But then we get to chapter 14, and it leaps forward in time, and it reveals the saints in heaven, the, the great company of the redeemed, uh, singing a new song before the throne of God in verses 1 through 5. We, we don't hear how they got from here to here. And we don't hear how the Holy War ended or how believers got to the heavenly Mount Zion. This is what the remainder of chapter 14 tells us about that we began to look at last week. Verses 6 through 14 uh, describe the final hour, uh, the time right before the return of Christ. And we looked at four features of the final hour last Sunday. And this morning in verses 14 through 20, we come to the final harvest, the harvest at the end of the age when Christ returns to, uh, to earth. This is, if you're counting, this is now the third time that John has described this event. He described it at the end of the seven seals, at the end of the seven trumpets, and here now, at the end of the Holy War, he describes this day to us yet again with the different details that he's filling in for us. He'll describe it, let's see, this is the uh, three more times in the book of Revelation before we get to the end. But here, what happens at the final harvest? What happens at this harvest at the end of the age? Well, this is what we want to find out today. And in, in, our, in these verses, we'll see that there are actually two harvests described here. Two different harvests in our passage. The first that John describes is the wheat harvest. Uh, and this is where Jesus gathers believers to himself when he returns at the end of the age. Uh, let me point out three things about this wheat harvest things about the wheat harvest. Uh, uh, first, we want to look at the person of the harvest. Uh, to begin with, we need to identify 
the person behind this wheat harvest. Look at verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Who is this person seated on a cloud? He's not named. He's holding a sickle in his hand. And you might already know. You might be ready to take a good guess. But by, it, by looking at these phrases that John uses, we'll be able to clearly identify uh, who he's talking about when we compare these phrases with other places in Scripture. First note that John says this person is seated on a white cloud. Uh, this phrase is similar to several other places, phrases that describe how Jesus Christ will return. Uh, for example, in Revelation 1-7, earlier in the book, it, it was described like this. John said, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. And then Matthew 24, called the Olivet Discourse, his return is described in, in the same way. Uh, Jesus said there, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And then finally, as he's addressing the Sanhedrin during his trial, Jesus said to those men, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So we can start off by saying this is how Christ's return is described in other places this way, coming uh, on, a, on the clouds of heaven. But John continues, and he describes him as one like a son of man. Uh, this is a second description he gives. And, and again, this is, this is also how Jesus is referred to in other places. Earlier in the book, we saw Jesus among the lampstands. If you can recall all the way back to chapter 1, which was sometime last year, uh, John wrote this in, in chapter 1. No, he didn't. Uh, he wrote this. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. So there he's described as one like a son of man. And then probably, probably, well, there it is. Uh, probably the most important place where we see him referred to as one like a son of man. It's a very important passage from Daniel chapter 7. Probably one of the, the most significant places that reveals the return of Christ. And listen to what Daniel says. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What we're reading here in verse 14 is, again, John doing what he's been doing through the whole book. He is using language from the Old Testament to describe these events at the end of the age. So he is also one like a son of man. Uh, John goes further to say he's, he's wearing a golden crown on his head. This is the victor's crown, uh, the laurel wreath of someone who has triumphed at the Olympic Games. The Stephanos is what it's called. And, and Paul describes... Uh, Christ this way, victorious and triumphant in Colossians chapter 2, for, uh, 2, verse 15. It says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him or in it, meaning the cross. So Christ is described as a conquering victor as well. Like this person, Jesus is described as a victor. And then lastly, the fourth description that he's given is he's come with a sharp sickle. Uh, now, a sickle isn't necessarily mentioned in other passages, but he, we see Christ is described as one who comes to harvest. A sickle is a farm implement like this, a handle with a very sharp blade. Some have quite long handles uh, used to uh, cut ripe grain. Uh, but listen to, to how Jesus is described as one who comes to harvest. 
Uh, first in Matthew chapter 3, verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. And then from our scripture reading today, we read this in chapter 13 of Matthew, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So, you may be way ahead of me on this, but looking at these four phrases all together, we clearly can identify the person in verse 14. Because of how Christ is referred to in other places, this is the Son of God. Come at the final harvest at the end of, end of the age, returning on the clouds of heaven to remove believers from the earth. Well, this is, this is the person of the harvest. Christ comes to harvest his own. But there's another thing I want to point out about the wheat harvest, and that's the timing of the harvest. John goes on to tell us when the wheat harvest takes place. Uh, first, I want you to notice the command for the harvest to begin in verse 15. Look at your Bible. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle, and reap. Now, some read verse 15 and they think, well, there, there's no way that that can be Christ in verse 14 because uh, an angel never has authority over Christ. And that couldn't possibly be Christ because here the angel seems to be giving him orders. There's no suggestion that this angel has authority over Christ. Notice that he comes out of the temple. Uh, he comes from the very presence of God. And what we're reading is this angel acting as a messenger between God the Father and God the Son. Now, you ask, why would an angel need to act as a messenger between God the Father and God the Son? It's because, friend, more than once Jesus stated that he did not know the time of the end. The timing of the harvest at the end of the age is something only the Father was aware of. Think of this from Mark 13, where Christ said, But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in, the hev in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Right before his ascension, Jesus explained to his disciples, he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And so one scholar offers this, Christ must be informed by God about the time for judgment to begin. Even after his resurrection and ascension, he is still subject to the Father's authority. And then Dr. Joel Beakey adds, the Son does nothing but what the Father commands. He does not come to judge until the Father gives the order, which he does here by sending an angel to carry his message. And so we see this command for the harvest to start. Uh, the angel carries the command from the Father to the Son and tells him to reap the harvest. But then as we go on here, we see something else. There, we see behind this the reason for, for this command from the Father, why God issued the command now. Verse 15, again, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Look at those last two words in verse 15, that phrase, fully ripe. More literally, it means to become dry. This is what grain does in the process of ripening. The stalks and the kernels of wheat, they become dry. This not only identifies this as a wheat harvest, this is also the sign that the wheat is ready to be gathered. This is the reason why the, father's, the Father has issued the command is that the wheat is fully ripe, dried out, and ready for the harvest. We see then, secondly, the timing of the harvest. One more thing to point out. And that's the result of the wheat harvest. Uh, the result of this. And we find it in verse 16. Very simply, it says, So he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. 
one like a son of man, seated on the cloud. Jesus, the victor over Satan and sin and death, swings his sickle across the earth and gathers believers to himself. This is the harvest that we uh, read about. Jesus gathering the wheat into his barn in Matthew 3.12. This is Christ issuing his command for the faithful witnesses to come up here that we read about in chapter 11. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here, and they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. I'm saying that this is that. And this is also the same event that Paul describes, uh, the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, which says this, for the Lord himself, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So one scholar concludes, it's the time of gathering the believers into the kingdom. For the sickle goes forth to reap God's people. So this is the third thing we notice here. It's the result. Uh, believers are harvested and gathered to Christ. So this is the first harvest we see here, the wheat harvest. And three things, the person of the harvest, who, who from Scripture clearly is Jesus Christ. The timing when the wheat dries and is fully ripened. And the result is that believers are gathered to him. So I just want to ask you this morning, are you ready for this harvest? Are you prepared for this harvest at the end of the age? How would we go about preparing for this harvest? I mean, this is, after all, this this is no hoax. This is no April Fool's joke. This will happen. And barring death, it will happen in our lifetime. How would you prepare for this? You would prepare, first of all, by trusting in Christ and his payment for sin on the cross. We turn from our sin to trust in Jesus as our Savior and Lord. We surrender our lives to Christ and become his followers. That's the, the chief and main and most important way we prepare for this day. Well, what if you have trusted Christ and are prepared in that way? Then we prepare further through personal holiness. Last Sunday in verse 12, we saw that the faithful believers are those who keep the commandments of God. And so I want you to hear Peter. He's describing this same day. And listen to what Peter says. Listen to how he calls us to prepare for this day. And Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, he's talking about the earth, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. What sort of people we ought to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. You know, sometimes I think we've got our, our goal in life uh, completely wrong. Many of us have in mind that we should become as much like the world in our appearance, our dress, our thoughts, and our speech as we can. Become as much like the world as we can. Get as close as we can. Look like them accepted by them, fit in with them. 
be comfortable around them. Have them be comfortable around us. And we slide further and further this way. Friend, does that, does that agree with what the Bible says? Come on. Is that what the Word of God calls us to do? Sure. You just slide over there. I'm okay if you become like them. Even if you're trying to witness to them, it's okay if you practice what they practice. What does Scripture say? The scripture says, if I can weave my way through here, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not model yourself after them. Don't be like them in the way you think, in the way you talk, in the way you dress. If you're going that way, you're going the wrong direction. Because Scripture says, come out from among them and be... Anybody know? Separate. That does not mean weird. But it does mean different, unlike them. This is how we prepare. Uh, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says. There's nothing which my heart desires more than to see you, the members of this church, distinguished for holiness. It is the Christian's crown and glory. An unholy church, it is of no use to the world and of no esteem among men. Oh, it is an abomination, hell's laughter, heaven's abhorrence. And the larger the church, the more influential the worst nuisance it become, does it become when it becomes unholy. The worst evils which have ever come upon the world have been brought upon her by an unholy church. Wow. A church that didn't conform to the Scripture. A church that said, eh, whatever. This is how we prepare for this day. The wheat harvest. It's the first harvest that we describe. This is the, the rapture of the saints, which we read about in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. Christ returns to gather believers to himself at the end of the age. Well, there's another harvest here. Some think that this is just one harvest, uh, uh, Described in a couple different ways. The language is too specific for that. It's clearly different. The next harvest we read about is the grape harvest. Uh, and I want to mention three things about this harvest. Very similar to the first harvest, there are three things you need to see about this harvest too. We begin with the reason for this second harvest. That's what we see in verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven. John likes that phrase, another angel. He used it last week several times. Another angel, another angel. Uh, this is not to say that the person in verse 14 is an angel. That's clearly Christ. But here we get in verse 17, Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven. He too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. Note where this angel comes from in verse 18. And another angel came from, out from the altar. We've 
notice this before in our study, this altar, it's, it's the heavenly altar of incense. We, we looked at it back in chapter 6 when the Lamb opens the fifth seal. Uh, chapter 6 says this, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, that's the same altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they, those under the altar, were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. The altar pops up again, not literally, of course, in chapter 8. Uh, there in the, in, in the seventh seal, we read these words in chapter 8, verse 2. Uh, 8, 3, And another angel came and stood at the altar, again, this altar of incense, with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Uh, uh, this uh, incense offered on the altar represents the prayers of the saints ascending before the throne. Uh, uh, it's, it's the incense of our prayers. And what effect does that have, these this incense, the prayers offered by believers as they ascend before the throne, listen to the effect it has. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Sounds like the day of the Lord. And you'd be correct if that's what you assumed. Because that is the day of the Lord. Peals of thunder, rumblings, flashing of flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And so what we see here in, in chapter 8 and verses 2 through 5 is the prayers of the saints hastening, bringing the day of the Lord. The prayers of God's people hasten the day of the Lord. And that's the same effect they have in our, our passage today. These prayers that, that come from the altar of incense uh, that the angel comes from in verse 18. Uh, this angel emerges from the altar of incense to begin this final harvest, the second harvest. He does this in response to the martyrs under the altar from chapter 6 and in response to the prayers of God's people. Friend, may this encourage us to pray as John prayed, Come, Lord Jesus. Even so, Lord, come quickly. Matthew 6, Thy kingdom come. Can I ask you, is there anything preventing you from praying that? Oh, I just want to experience a little bit more of life on planet Earth. I just can't get enough of it. It's so fun. Well, maybe you... I've had enough. Now, I'm only 59 years old. But I've, I've seen plenty. And I know you have too. May this encourage us to cry out. Lord, come soon. Jesus, come soon. And may we hasten the day. May the same thing that the prayers of the saints in chapter 8, what they did, may our prayers have the same effect. And send this angel out from the altar to call for this grape harvest to take place. And this is in part the reason for this harvest, the prayers of the saints. But I want you to see a second thing about the grape harvest. Again, we're looking at the timing of this event. Verse 18 goes on to say about the middle of the verse, the second angel, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, 
Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. Clusters, uh, is grapes still connected by their stems? A bunch of grapes. These clusters are gathered from the vine of the earth. And the reason that they're harvested from the vine is because like the wheat before it, they too have ripened and are ready for the harvest, as the last word says, uh, its grapes are ripe. But this word for ripe is different from the word that was used in 15 with the wheat. This is a completely different word. This term, in, at the end, the last word of verse 18, means to grow ripe, to become sweet, to become edible. In some cases, it means to become overripe. Charles Spurgeon says the Greek word used here means that they have reached their acme. They have come to the highest point of sin. And if you'll think back to Genesis, there's a similar thing that took place there. God said to Abraham, when he's telling them what's happening in the future, your descendants shall come back here in the promised land in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so 400 years later, when Israel came into the promised land, the sin of the Amorites was complete. Their sin was so great, God could no longer tolerate them in the land, and so he summoned Israel to wipe them out. This ripening and sin coming to its fullness is, is what we're reading about here. And the sin of this world will be so great. So overripe. That God in His holiness will no longer tolerate it. And so Spurgeon goes on to say this. To go on year after year despising Christ and rejecting His gospel must make man what we call dead ripe. When a man goes on to profanity and blasphemy and infidelity, surely he must be fully ripe. So we'll all be in that great day of the gathering of the vintage of woe and just as the clusters of the vine cannot resist the force of the hand that plucks them or the sharp knife that cuts them off, so shall the wicked in that day be utterly defenseless, hopeless, and helpless. And he that reefs them with his sharp sickle shall find no difficulty in cutting them all off. This is the timing. The grape harvest takes place because sin has reached, as Spurgeon said, its Acme, its high point, the grapes are overripe. Well, finally, we come to the results of this harvest. We saw the results of the wheat harvest, and we noticed the results of the grape harvest, and they are remarkably different. Uh, the results of the grape harvest. There are actually two results here. The first result we see unfurled the wrath of the Lamb. Talk about an oxymoron. Wrath from a Lamb. But this is what we see. Christ dispenses the wrath of God in this final harvest. Look at verse 19 with me. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. Well, it's the angel who reaps the grapes in verse 19. It's Christ who tramples them in the winepress. Uh, a wine press looked something like this in the ancient world. If you can see up towards the top of the picture, you see two figures standing in a very large, this is made of stone, uh, two large figures standing in a, a trough. Uh, the juice from the crushed grapes flowed through uh, a channel that you see there into lower troughs, 
And from here, the grapes were either uh, put into porcelain jars, uh, made of pottery or, or goat skins often. Um, we know that Christ is the one who's doing the trampling in this case because later on in chapter 19, John describes it clearly, which is yet another description of Christ's return. He writes this in chapter 19. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. We see first here, one result is the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus the Lamb dispenses the wrath of God on unbelievers at the final harvest. But you might be asking, what's this imagery refer to? This wine press? Uh, this, uh, this, uh, this harvest? What do these symbols mean uh, it, that John is using? Well, the second result that we find here is the destruction of the wicked. And it is quite grim. Again, this harvest is not funny. This is no joke. Look at verse 20 with me again. And the wine press was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. When Jesus tramples the grapes of the earth in the wine press of God's wrath, it's not the juice of grapes that we're looking at, it's the blood of unbelievers. It's the blood of unbelievers. Again, John is, John is drawing all these images from the Old Testament. He's not really coming up with anything new. The prophet Joel wrote of this. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. There's the idea of ripeness again. But more specifically, I want you to hear this passage from Isaiah. They're very similar. John is obviously using images here and bringing them into Revelation 14. And Isaiah is describing the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 63. And he says this, Why is your apparel red? And your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I've trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. The symbolism of grapes and the wine press symbolizes the destruction of the wicked at the end of this age. Uh, notice the extent of this bloodshed. And blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia, which the footnote in your ESV says is about 184 miles. Some people think that this refers to literal geography from the top of Israel to the bottom is roughly the same size. And so they see this number literally and they take this as an event that takes place in the land of Palestine and is limited to that region. Others see this number like many of John's other numbers as, as a, a symbol and believe that this description in verse 20 describes a worldwide event. They point out that it's unlikely that all of the Messiah's enemies could even fit in the land of Palestine. And this amount of bloodshed is, is significant, as high as a horse's bridle, for 184 miles, and they say this 
is representative of worldwide catastrophe. It's destruction of the wicked uh, all over the earth. They see this as a worldwide event because a worldwide event is what the Word of God seems to describe the return of Christ as. For example, Matthew uh, describes it like this. They then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This is how John described his return in chapter 1. Again, behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him in all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him even so. Amen. These verses seem to point to global, a global event in destruction of the wicked on a worldwide scale. And so one man says this, John's major concern is to show that there will be a cataclysmic destruction of mankind at the end of the age. The vast quantity of of blood points to the blotting out of all mankind. The earth has come to a final end. Blood stretching for 1,600 stadia thus stands for the complete judgment of the whole earth and the destruction of all the wicked. I believe he's correct. Grim as it sounds. This is the second outcome of the grave harvest. The wrath of the Lamb and the destruction of the wicked. The harvest of unbelievers at the end of the age. And it's no joke. So as I asked you before, can I ask you again? Are you ready for this harvest? You mean the second harvest? I mean the second harvest. Pastor Rob, I I intend to go in the first harvest by the grace of God. And so how would I prepare for this second harvest? If we prepare for the first harvest through personal holiness, then we prepare for the second harvest through personal evangelism. We prepare for the second harvest by sharing the good news of Christ's payment for sin on the cross. We prepare for the second harvest by faithfully sharing the gospel with those in our households and those in our circle of influence. This is not a practical joke. Some years back, there was a Mercedes-Benz TV commercial showed one of their cars, you know, as they always do, colliding with a cement wall during a safety test. And then uh, the narrator asked the company's spokesman, why don't they enforce their patent? Uh, They apparently had a patent on their energy-absorbing car body. It was a life-saving design, evidently copied by other companies because it was successful. Why, hadn't, why don't you uh, enforce your patent? Why do you let them steal this design? And the uh, Mercedes spokesman replied rather dryly, matter-of-factly, matter because some things in life are too important not to share. Your friends and your family and the people around you need to hear that this harvest is no hoax. This is no April Fool's Day stunt. This is not another spaghetti harvest. This harvest is genuine, and it's sure to come. If we prepare for the first harvest through personal holiness, 
We prepare for the second through personal evangelism. So, this, friends, is the final harvest. The end of the age. What happens when Christ returns? Well, we've seen here that there are actually two harvests that take place. The first is the wheat harvest that we looked at, where Christ returns for believers, those who have uh, trusted in His atoning death on the cross. And we saw three things related to them. We saw the, uh, to this harvest the person that it's Christ Himself coming on the clouds of heaven. And the timing is when the wheat is ripe and ready to be gathered. And the result is that believers are raptured and gathered to Him. And we've seen the second harvest, the grape harvest, with three things related to that. The, the reason is the prayers of God's people, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And the timing, when the grapes are ripe, when sin has reached its peak, and the results is the wrath of the Lamb dispensed on the unbelieving world, the realm of the beast. Are you ready? for the final harvest. Savior, prepare us for the end. Savior, for those who have yet to trust in You as their Savior and Lord, I really do pray that they'd be alarmed this morning and that they would hear the truth. And they would hear your call to flee from the wrath to come. And that they would hear your gracious invitation to turn from sin, to rely on Christ your Son and His payment for sin on the cross. God, work this. Should there be anyone here today who's not trusted in your son's payment for sin. And Lord, some of us here have known Christ a long time, and we have gradually grown closer and closer to the world. And we are not living in godliness and true holiness like your word instructs us. I pray that you would even alarm us, that our lives would be pure and holy at your appearing that we would not be ashamed to see you come, caught red-handed as it were. In Christ, please help us to prepare for the second harvest, this grape harvest, with the urgency of the gospel message that people are in danger and they need to run away from the wrath that's coming by running to Christ. God, work this in us by your Spirit who indwells us. Jesus, we ask these things in your name. Amen.